Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is it. We have reached the end. This is going to be our last episode of the year. And so, as we have become accustomed to doing, what we are going to do today is look back over that year. Uh, This is the year in review episode. That's right. It's really exciting. We're really glad to have gotten through this year, uh, which for many of us, I can imagine, has been a a pretty tough year coming off of maybe two really tough years. So, I don't know. Hopefully, this episode will bring you a, a small bit of joy. It's certainly bringing us joy to to bring it to you. Here's the plan for the episode. We're going to talk about our favorite stories from the year. We're going to talk about some common themes and motifs that came up during our uh, discussion of these stories, or maybe we're going to group some stories together and try to drag some common themes and motifs <laughs> out of them. Uh, we're going to examine some of the craft that, that we came across, and then we're going to look ahead to 2022. But before we get into any of that, uh, we want to take stock of what it is that we actually did cover during 2021. And I will say that I have been accused by a, a very good friend of the the network of uh, being a secret pollster because I love to talk about the stats of what we have done, <laughs> not just here, but uh, you know, in other other places on the on the network as well. And it is true, I do love lists and spreadsheets, and I love making spreadsheets about lists and lists about spreadsheets, and I love data. Uh, so we're gonna. <laughs> do that. We're going to go through uh, just sort of looking at what it is that we actually did cover. But of course, behind the scenes for us, there's a reason that we do this to start off these year in review shows, which is that you and I together do two shows on the network and I'm on all the shows at the network. So I actually need to do this work <laughs> to remember <laughs> what is it we're supposed to be talking about? You know, what's what did we do in this year? Because also our recording schedule is always a little bit uh, wonky there. But then also, what did we do on this show? So setting the parameters for the conversation. But we've also got some announcements about things we're going to put in this first part of the episode. And so we have a lot of thank yous to say. So we're going to take stock of all of that. And let's just start by talking about how many stories we did and who wrote them and so on. And in all, we did 23 stories over 34 episodes this year. Uh, One of the stories that we did was a novel. We did that over two episodes. One of the stories that we did was a movie. And we only did one episode on that. But hey, it was a movie. And we'd never done that before. And that was really fun and really cool. We only did two writers with multiple stories this year, which is the first time that's like the the lowest it's been in the years that we've been doing the show. Uh, And those were Robert E. Howard and Roger Zelazny. Uh, We only did two stories for each of them. We did The Black Stone and Queen of the Black Coast by Robert E. Howard. And then we did Four Breath I Terry and The Furies by Roger Zelazny. But I think really the biggest thing this year, actually, the the thing that really stands out when you're looking over the list of episodes that we did is that we didn't do a single Lovecraft story. Uh, not a single one, just zero, big zero for, for Lovecraft on Elder Sign. And that is not at all something I thought I would ever say. When we were envisioning this show, I always assumed that we would get a Lovecraft story on every ballot and we would end up doing then five or six of his stories per year. But that is just not what voters have wanted. Uh, and, and we also haven't really been doing that with any single writer. And so all in all, this year in particular was a year of breadth rather than depth with just a huge amount of variety across you know, time, the chronological period, also across genre, and even across medium, because we did a, a movie this year. We also did uh, this year, I think very importantly, our first work in translation. That was The Portrait, which was written in Russian originally by Gogol. And I have to say, Brandon, that I'm 
thrilled about this amount of breath. And also, of course, we should say, too, that this is really something that we owe to the listener involvement in the show. I've really loved it as well. I've loved reading broadly this year. And one of the reasons why is that it's really helped expand some of the boundaries and parameters of the show. And so, boy, what a great year of reading this has been for us on Elder Sign. Man, and 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 that's really due to the broad interests of our audience. And I, I don't know if there's a better audience out there on any podcast network. I will say definitively, there is not. I have been really, really thrilled by the engagement that we get with our listeners. It's been really fun for me, even when they are calling me a secret pollster. It's been really <laughs> fun for me to to get to know so many of our listeners so well. And uh, one of the things certainly that we owe to our listeners is how many episodes they've been commissioning from us. We did six commissions for this show that was spread over 10 episodes, which means that a a little bit over a quarter of the stories that we did were extra bonus episodes that were commissioned by listeners uh, over a quarter of the stories, but actually just shy of even a third of the number of episodes that we did this year. And not even just thinking about the numbers there, some of the very cool stuff that we did this year was because of commissions. Uh, the movie, The Lighthouse, that was a commission. The novel, The House on the Borderland, that was a commission. We got introduced to writers who are new to the show and and I think were largely just new to us in general, like Laird Barron, Gertrude Atherton, Karen Russell, all of that was awesome. So before we move on, let's just take a moment here to yeah, just say thank you, to express our gratitude for the, the generosity behind this commission. It's really great to have the impetus to do these episodes, get to explore new writers, and also, and I think maybe especially, to be brought into stories that our listeners love. But it is also a huge part of the fiscal health of the network. And so these commissions mean a lot to us. So thank you. Yeah, I, I, I echo your thanks, Glenn, and I really can't express my gratitude enough, not only for allowing me the time and energy to read contemporary horror writers that would take me years to get to otherwise uh, if we weren't doing this show, but also I want to thank our listeners, especially for making Glenn read fiction that was written after <laughs> 1948. <laughs> right, I would just never have done it otherwise, and uh, I'm I've been glad to have done it. We'll uh, we'll have some more to say about that when we get into talking about our favorites, which we'll do in just a few more minutes. But I I want to make a, a, an announcement here about what's going to be happening with commissions going forward. As you said, Brandon, this the end of 2021 is really drawing to a close. Two years that have been pretty tough for uh, a lot of people, and certainly have changed the way that we were all living our lives. And so next year, 20. 2022, as we here at the network are starting to put together some post-pandemic lives, and also with some major non-pandemic related changes happening for uh, the two of us, our time is going to become more limited. Uh, in fact, I would say much, much more limited. And so we're going to be raising the prices on commissions from $150, which is what they are now, to $250. And we know that's a pretty steep increase, but it does not go into effect until January. And so you've got a few weeks left at the low price. So if there is a story that you have been thinking about commissioning, but just have not gotten around to doing it, now's a great time to contact us. And you can do that on, on Twitter or Reddit. You can also email us at claytemplemedia at gmail.com. And even if we get a lot of takers here, uh, you know, that's something that would take us a while to get to. But even if we do get a lot of takers, we will honor that lower price, you know, even if we end up working on these pretty late into 2022. 
But all right, I have also one more thing that I need to say thank you for, and that is all of the guests who I was able to bring on to do this bonus series with me. I had nine really awesome guests come on the show to talk with me about a favorite story of theirs. And it was an incredible amount of fun for me to read some stories that I think that you and I, Brandon, would just never, ever have have gotten to. So just a huge thanks to everyone who came on the show with me. And and, and I had wanted to do more episodes in that series. This is actually a series, you know, uh, I started this, this was an idea that I had when I lost my job and suddenly found myself with more time. <laughs> uh, that time has disappeared now. It is fizzled out here at the end of the year. So I didn't get to as many of these as I had really wanted to. But we do also have some plans plans for bringing that series back next year. We'll talk about that in January, but uh, this was something I really enjoyed. And so just a huge thanks to everyone who joined me on the show. Yeah, I've really enjoyed listening to these as well. Hearing different voices, uh, hearing you interact with them, hearing different people's approach to stories, particularly craftsmen or people engaged in the horror world. Man, it it was a real pleasure for me to just be able to sit down and and listen to an episode. I mean, I don't even have time to listen to podcasts anymore (laughs) because of the show. And then, you know, I'm also uh, actually planning planning out a series myself. So uh, who knows? Hopefully that'll air in 2022. We'll see, uh, given, you know, the number of transitions that I that are coming up for me as well. But um, real pleasure to to kind of sit back and chill out and listen to you engage with other writers and and craftsmen and uh, I don't know, luminaries of the field or future luminaries. Uh, This bonus series has been a real pleasure for me to to listen to and participate in as a fan. Well, I'm glad you uh, approved of the people I brought on to replace you, Brandon, the scabs. So uh, I do hope that we'll get to do more of that next year. But uh, that's looking ahead, which is not where we are yet. We're still looking back at 2021. And there is one last thing to mention here, and that is all of the Patreon episodes that we did. And foremost to say here is thanks to our really awesome listeners, we hit our goal of doing a bonus series on At the Mountains of Madness, uh, which we mentioned before. But at this point, we are about halfway through that now. That is, of course, on top of the regular monthly bonus episodes that we do. And then on top of both of those things, we also did about a dozen extra episodes for supporters at our voting levels. And so when I went back and looked over the the list, I realized, Brandon, that we actually wound up doing slightly more weird fiction episodes on Patreon than we did on Elder Sign this year, which is awesome, though it has made the next task very difficult. But before we get to talking about our favorite stories, again, we want to say thank you to the listeners who are with us on Patreon, the the people who financially support this show and make all of this possible. Thank you. Yeah, this year we were so busy, Glenn. It was crazy how many episodes we did this year, not just on Elder Sign, you know, between the main show and the Patreon episodes, but also, you know, the number of times I guessed it on ATAS uh, and then also the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast. I would say the bulk of our time recording this year was for Elder Sign. And that is awesome because it just shows how much this show has grown, how much listener engagement we have, and how much of our audience cares about what we're doing on the network. And that was a real pleasure for me to kind of sit back and reflect upon as I, as I prepared for the year in review show. Yeah. Cause we've just been in it, right? We've just got 
a list of what we're recording and when we're recording and you know people email us commission things i run the votes it just think new things get put on the list and we just you know kind of just crazy people living in basements because of the pandemic <laughs> really talking into microphones about horror stories and weird fiction stories and uh you know to do this episode to take a step back and take a breath and look back over everything that we did I go, how did we how did we pull that off uh, though you know the living in the basement and not showering is actually a huge part <laughs> of uh, how that got pulled off well and also of course because we hit this goal on patreon the mountains of madness goal it does mean that we've got a blank space now right so we've got to decide what is going to be the next bonus series goal. And of course, right, what we do here is we leave that up to our supporters. And we're going to have a vote next month in January to decide that. And at the end of the show today, I'm going to spring on Brandon what is going to be on the ballot so that we can get a, a live reaction from him because he has no idea what what was That's even true. going on behind the scenes there. <laughs> I'll keep but, water uh, from my mouth so uh, people don't have to listen to a spit take. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, for now, we'll save that to the end of the show. So for now, let's actually move on to talking about our favorites because I think we have probably over-sufficiently cataloged everything that we <laughs> covered this year. So... So what we're going to do here is we're each going to pick our three favorite stories that we did on Elder Sign, uh, you know, this year, 2021. Uh, and let's just start with you, Brandon. What was your number one favorite story of 2021? My number one favorite story of 2021 was The Furies by Roger Zelazny. Uh, I really loved this story uh, for so many reasons. We were a little critical of it, I think, in our episode in our discussion talking about it. Um, there are some structural issues maybe with it. There's a few uh, questionable character things going on. But man, what it did to my imagination, you know, made me think about writing scripts for comic books, the characters, the pulpy nature of it. It was just exactly the type of story I needed to read this year. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about what I mean by that when we talk about some lessons learned. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised actually to hear this. I, I think probably you do this as well, Brandon. But for me, part of the fun of this show is me trying to guess what you're going to pick, and and you know also then thinking about overlaps. And uh, I thought there was probably a chance. Maybe I still think uh, that there's probably a chance that. Uh, two of our picks might be the same, but this was not even on my radar actually as a pick for you. Though thinking back on it, you know, hearing you explain why this was your absolute favorite story of 2021, it it should not have surprised me. I remember you you organized the discussion for that episode, and it was very clear in the way that you were approaching that story, the questions that you asked about it, that it had really lit a fire in your imagination. Yeah, it sure did. I love I love a good yarn. I love good pulp. I love uh, you know that that era of comic books and the the types of storytelling, the techniques of storytelling that came out from that uh, more visual medium of storytelling. And I think Zelazny really was onto something uh, with the Furies. And it's you know as we talked about in the episode, uh, I don't know if you've got the money and you know an artist. When you and I can get to work writing this series, if somebody can buy the rights. <laughs> well, we'll just we'll just call it something else. We'll call it like the Huries or something. You know, yeah. it's be totally yeah. totally the Valkyries, legal. I don't know. We'll come up with something. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a much better idea than mine. <laughs> that's, uh, that's how this all works. <laughs> well, Glenn, what was your what was your top pick for the year? 
Well, despite your needling me about hating all fiction post-1948, <laughs> my favorite story this year is actually one of the most recent stories that we have done. I mean, it's still almost 20 years old, but it's one of the most recent stories we have done, and that is The Transformation of Martin Lake by Jeff Vandermeer. This, I think, was, you know, like The Furies did for you. This is a story that just absolutely captured my imagination. We did three episodes on this, so we were with this one for a long time, and this story really just just worked on my imagination on almost every sensory level. Uh, you know, I could visualize ambergris. I was hearing it. I, I was smelling it. I could feel it. Uh, you know, it just all of the senses were really on fire for me in the way that Jeff Vandermeer was building this world. There was a sense of of time and historicity in this place, like change over time, learning about the the different neighborhoods, in addition to learning about con, you know the contemporary people in the life of Martin Lake. But then also this sense going forward a little bit anyway, and seeing how Martin Lake himself is remembered when he's dead. And all of those things really just made the city of Ambergris a real place for me. And I just love this story for it. Yeah, that's number three on my list. So there's one of our overlaps. Okay, <laughs> and this uh, was for, one that I thought might be an overlap. Yeah, yeah. It was for me. It was. I don't know. It wasn't even a question of whether or not this was going to be on the list. It was just where it was going to be on the list. Uh, this story is gorgeously written. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about, you know, th the aesthetics of it. I mean, it is a, a story about aesthetics on some level or aesthetic theory, artistic theory, the role of the artist. Uh, I love all that kind of thought. And, I'll, you know, like I said, I'll talk more about that later, so I won't go into it now. <laughs> but Vandermeer's a master. Uh, you know, the, the City of Saints and Mad Men was a story I bought when we were both in Colorado together. And I never cracked it open. And 10 or 12 years later, I was moving. I had to whittle down some books. I got rid of it. And it's been on my mind ever since then. It's like one of three books that I have put in, in the giveaway box to donate to a library and have regretted ever since. And so this coming back into my life uh, in a year, <laughs> that was pretty challenging. <laughs> um, getting the copy for the show and being able to really go deep into one of these stories was was a true pleasure. And I'm really glad to have this book back on my shelf. Yeah, and I, I hope that we'll get to do more from this book in, in the future. Jeff Vandermeer is someone I think I would like to spend a little more time with. I've I've not read I've not read any of the Southern Reach novels or seen the film Annihilation, though I have listened to the score because I'm a weirdo who does that. But uh, <laughs> I would like to check those out. But really, the thing is that I don't think he writes a ton of short fiction anymore. And even his older short fiction is actually fairly hard to come by, at least in physical form. But I do hope that we'll find a way to do more Jeff Vandermeer on the show in the future. All right, Brandon, um, I'm just going to play a drinking game here to see if the other story that I've anticipated being on your list is here or not. Yeah, I, I mean, if this one overlaps, then uh, we'll just have the mystery of your third choice. But number two for me is The Inmost Light. And then the third one, as I said, is Transformation of Martin Lake. I really loved The Inmost Light. This was the Machin that I had been waiting for us to get to. I loved the characters of the story. I loved the dialogue. I loved the technique, the plot mechanics, the humor, the serious questions raised by the story, the way in which everything was handled. This story really blew me away. And I don't really know what else to say about it. I just, I just loved everything about it. You know, it's another story that played on my imagination as, as Machen is sort of toying with this idea of almost creating an uh, iconic occult detective. 
But I mean, as far as we know, he doesn't use these these characters again. So, uh, or he may. But anyway, I this was number two, and it was not not so hard of a choice for me. Yeah, Dyson does show up in in another, at least one other story. It might actually be two other stories by Mackin, but never goes on to be Karnacki, the Ghost Finder, uh, you know, or 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 Legrandon, or you know, anything like that. Uh, which is a shame because, yeah, In Most Light was an absolutely brilliant story. There were some really bonkers plot mechanics that I think we both really <laughs> liked. There was a lot of you know mind body dualism there, like substance dualism in that story, but just also some beautiful descriptive writing. And this is a story that I revisited again, thinking about this list. It didn't make it on the list for me, but it was a it was a contender. Yeah, I mean the prose of the story is is just wonderful as well. And I I have I have it on my desk in the improbable circumstance where our favorite passages <laughs> somehow overlap as a backup uh, because uh, Mackin's description of the city of like thinking of murder as an art form of weirdness and horror as a, a mode of art that cities need to produce that artists who live in cities need to need to represent that dark side of the city and hey that's a big part of the transformation of Martin Lake as well um, but just some of Mackin's descriptions of wandering in the city of of liminal spaces of all that stuff man this just hit all the right notes for me yeah, there's certainly a real overlap there uh, between Inmost Light and Transformation of Martin Lake in that they're, uh, they're about guys walking around the city and discovering some weird stuff happening and, and the city that they're walking around in being a big part of the the story, right? That this, the setting is really important to both of those stories. So there's a real overlap there in the, the way that they feel. Well, what's two and three for you, Glenn? Yeah. So number two for me was The Portrait by Nikolai Gogol. I really, really loved this story. I am on record, and as you never let me forget, <laughs> loving dense 19th century prose. And and I guess if it's in Russian translated back into English, it's even denser, right? <laughs> and uh, so that was just tailor-made for me. And I also really enjoyed learning about St. Petersburg. But I think that what really did it for me, though, was the, the narrative technique. Uh, this was the, this novella really appears in two parts. They've got different narrative styles in each part. Uh, one of them is actually this kind of crazy collection of like short anecdotes or short vignettes about you know what's going on with the portrait. We also get some really cool stuff uh, about uh, you know the power of art, the power of of painting, its use in religion, but also its ability to be perverted in such a way that it can actually you know, corrupt us. And I really enjoyed all of that. Plus, uh, you know, it was the exact plot of Ghostbusters too. And uh, that's also got a special place in my heart. <laughs> well, yeah, mine too. I mean, on my totally arbitrary list of rankings, you know, where, uh, you know, numbers four through 25 or 26 or whatever are ranked mysteriously based on my mood. And uh, the poor, I just looked at it again. The portrait's number eight, though it could easily be number four as well. It's just, I, I'm looking at my list of four through eight here and they could literally be in any order and it would be fair. Like they're all tied for four in my in my mind. But I had to <laughs> kind of come up with an arbitrary ranking here. And uh, yeah, I, you know, man, that story was just so good. So beautifully written. I think one of the reasons why I put it is at number eight is because I'm going to be talking about it later on. So I knew I'd be talking about it and I didn't have to uh, put it in my top three list. 
Yeah, this was actually one that I thought we might overlap on this and and Martin Lake were the two that I thought there's a good chance that uh, that we're both going to have this on the list. But my my last pick, number three for me, you know, I, I didn't do quite what you did there, Brandon, but I, I went out to about, you know, I don't know, six or seven here on the list. And I hemmed and hawed here about what's number three and what's number four. But I think when I sat down and just allowed myself to be emotionally honest with myself, uh, I've got to say that I just disagree with Lovecraft so much here. And I think that Seabury Quinn is amazing. And Horror on the Links was one of my absolute favorite stories that we read this year. It was came in number three for me. The, the French occult detective in New Jersey investigating this crazy <laughs> mad science murder on a golf course. I mean, it just uh, it was everything uh, that I'm looking for in a kind of pulpy adventure story. It was such a, a breeze to read. So many twists, so much crazy stuff happening, but all so deftly written with characters. Characters very well drawn and just a, a really fun, weird fiction, but like kind of tongue in cheek, weird fiction take on cozy detective stories. I mean, it literally is taking its title from a very, very re- recent Agatha Christie novel and playing around with that and, you know, mixing it up, mashing it up with uh, the murders in the room morgue and the island of Dr. Moreau. It's just it's just fantastic. And this is really, I think, so far been the only story that we have read that has made me think, let's quit Elder Sign and do a single author focus show instead. And I want to do it on Seabury Quinn. I mean, we're not going to, but this is the first time I've really felt that way. I've never felt that way about Lovecraft or Poe or Howard, you know, these writers that I love. But this story really did that for me. This is number five on my on my arbitrary list here. And then <laughs> the one that beats it is River Sticks Runs Upstream, uh, the Dan Simmons story that we did. And, the, you know, that's entirely arbitrary. This was very close to making my top three, but I kind of chose the Furies as my kind of uh, pulp story uh, for my list. You know, for those of you listening who think none of this makes sense, you're absolutely right. Like, why have one pulp story <laughs> if I love pulp stories? I don't know. Uh, but I I loved Horror on the Links. I loved this Seabury Quinn story. It very narrowly missed my top three, but it's in my top five. Well, and I was going back and forth on whether or not it should be The Blackstone by Robert E. Howard, which again is a story that I just absolutely love. And I think that probably ultimately what placed Horror on the Links above the Blackstone for me is simply that Horror on the Links was new. And so it was exciting to me in a way that the Blackstone, which I have read many times, was was not, uh, which is not to say it was not exciting, but that it was exciting in a different way. It was not exciting in the the novelty of it. But uh, Blackstone by Robert E. Howard, that's a pretty awesome story, too. And yeah, I had uh, the River Sticks runs upstream pegged as going to be your number one, Brandon. So I was surprised that uh, it wasn't on, on the top three at all. Well, I have it when we're, I have it, one of my favorite passages coming from that story. So I, we still get to talk about it. <laughs> All right. Well, well, now we have the task of putting these stories into our overall rankings. But I think that now that we are three years into this project, we're just going to start really maintaining a top three. But let's go over the four stories uh, that are on your list from uh, the first two years of this show, Brandon, before we, we see where uh, stories from this year stack up. So your current list has Purity by Thomas Ligotti at number one. Uh, number two is Houses Under the Sea by Caitlin R. Kiernan. 
Number three is also Roger Zelazny. That's The Graveyard Heart. And then number four is William Hope Hodgson. That's the haunted Jarvia Karnacki story. So do uh, any of your favorites from this year crack the top three for you? I think so. I think I can easily kind of dismiss The Graveyard Heart and Haunted Jarvie from the list. And if I really, I'm not getting rid of Purity and Houses Under the Sea in the top two spots yet. Uh, Transformation of Martin Martin Lake might give them a run for their money, but uh, maybe it was just the early time of doing the show. I still think Houses Under the Sea is a total masterpiece and Purity is astonishingly good. I mean, I still have not gotten that image of uh, raw hot dogs and mayonnaise out of my head. (laughs) That's saying something, you know, that's some real staying power. So I think if I had to pick a top three from this list, I might put the inmost light on it. And that's a strange choice. But I think given what I you know see in the Graveyard Heart and Haunted RV, I need a real occult detective on my, on my top three list. And the inmost light is it. Last night, uh, Elizabeth was uh, feeding Finch a dinner that involved mayonnaise. And all I could think about while I was hanging out there was was Purity by Thomas Lingotti. That is an image. Uh, Look, I'm just going to get it put on my tombstone because there's just no reason not to. It's just, uh, it's going to be the last thing I ever think about. It's sublime. uh, It's a sublime uh, image. (laughs) Thank you to the uh, the listener who put that on the ballot for us. (laughs) Well, my current list is the Murders in the Rue Morgue by Edgar Allan Poe at number one, The Mask and The Repair of Reputations, both by Robert W. Chambers at number two and number three. And then number four for me was Roger Lasney, The the Graveyard Heart. But um, yeah, I'd like you, Brandon, I'm going to get rid of those bottom two. I'm going to get rid of The Repair of Reputations and The Graveyard Heart. And that does then mean that my number one for this year, uh, The Transformation of Martin Lake, is going to go in at number three. Doesn't doesn't beat out The Mask, doesn't beat out The Murders in the Room Orc for me, but um, is is solidly in my top three here. And uh, uh, just looking at that on my outline here, I I am realizing that now my top three favorite stories are two stories that actually take place in Paris and one that we both thought was set in like an imaginary Belle Epoque Paris. So (laughs) I don't know what what that's worth, but it turns out, I guess I like stories in Paris or fantasy cities that are very much like Paris. You also have two stories about artists uh, and the the cost of making art or something like that, which is really interesting as well. I mean, I this is so hard. This is getting harder and harder because we read so much throughout the year and we cover these stories. It's a pretty quick turnaround uh, from, you know, when we read them, and, you know, sit down and talk about them. And then we're on to the next thing that we don't always have time to breathe with them. And so doing this show at the end of the year, thinking about what I even remember (laughs) that we covered is its own sort of challenge. And yet these stories, the mask is something that I still think about a lot as a story that could easily be in my top, top three lists now, you know? Um, so there's, it's just, uh, man, it's a wild trip doing this show. Well, certainly years and years from now, when uh, we wrap this whole show up, that's going to be one of the fun things to do, actually, is going to be to look back, reflect on what we've done over the, the many years, probably more than a decade of of this show, and think about which stories you know still speak to us from 10, 9, 8, 7 years previously, and, and see how that shapes up. And uh, yeah, I'm with you, Brandon. That's a huge part of, of the joy of doing this show, is just remembering what we actually did this year. <laughs> is there sometimes are some stories that go, oh yeah, we did do that. 
what did we say? Sometimes I don't even remember which of us did the recap, though you would think that, that, would, that would be something we'd remember. <laughs> we're, we're of one mind, Glenn. Well, let's stick on the topic here of, of favorites, but let's move as well into talking about writing craft. So let's do some favorite passages. But Brandon, you have teased some of the stories that you're going to be uh, pulling passages from. But what was your number one favorite passage this year? Yeah, this was really hard. And uh, I got all my books out you know, for the show for the year and scattered them across the bed in the guest bedroom <laughs> where I record and was just kind of looking at the covers and thinking and picking things up and reading passages and putting them down. And, you know, my first choice here uh, is is from Black Corfu by Karen Russell. And I, I realized as I was flipping through that story that I could really pick almost any passage from that book. You know, every time I opened this story at random to see if I could find a passage to read from it, I found one. What really impressed me when, when reading the story, when we covered it, was Russell's command of language and metaphor. Her use of language is so tightly constructed to keep us in that close third-person perspective of you know, this posthumous doctor of Corfu, of Corfu um, and his mental life. And, and what really comes out through this story is his self-absorption, his selfishness, and that's his fatal flaw. But then he's also in a culture where he's reviled, not just because of his profession, but because of his race as well. And all of these things work together to create the kind of internal core conflicts of the char character. And the passage I'm about to read, I think, really demonstrates Russell's complexity in engagement in kind of the classic fatal flaw of a tragic protagonist, along with kind of societal and structural issues that, that are really hard to overcome or defeat on a personal level, especially if you're isolated or ostracized from any kind of community. And it really points to the irony of the story, which is that there may be some fears that our main character in particular here is unsuited to treat. So let me read this passage here. When he was a petulant student himself, luxuriating in a bath of self-pity, the doctor would heap effervescent salts into the boiling cauldron of his mind. Black grief, red rage, crystals quarried from the deepest wounds in his body. He did this until his eyes were wet and raw, and his skin took on the shine of deep mud. At last, the Jesuit had become exhausted with him. With a sharp rap to his shin, he roused the boy, who would become the posthumous surgeon, back into the room. Enough! You think it is beneath you to help the dead? Let me tell you a secret. Because you have been too dense to realize it. Let me tell you a secret because you have been too dense to realize it. We treat the living. We treat the fears of the living. And uh, boy, what a beautiful passage. Yeah, I mean, just the, the use of colors there in, in, in the writing paints a real vivid image. And we get a real strong sense here of the complexity of this relationship and the feelings of our protagonist, the protagonist of, of this story, uh, his feelings about the, the Jesuit who trained him all just come through in this, this description. That's really awesome. Right. And, and, and this main character, I think, is one of my favorite uh, main characters that we've read this year, uh, you know, a timely year to read a story about uh, racism perpetuated by uh, a culture that doesn't let this person participate 
in society the way they know their capabilities would allow them to. And yet at the same time, it's not society who destroys this character. It's his own resentment and uh, just a beautiful, beautiful, complex story. Yeah. Russell's writing was just awesome. I, I actually had this one pegged as, as probably going to be in your top three here, not least because of the magnificence of this writing. I had this one down off the shelf as well uh, and wound up basically just reading the entire story again. And wow, just what a fun read this is. What a beautiful, gorgeous, engrossing story. Uh, this was one of the stories that was uh, commissioned. So doubly grateful for uh, that listener bringing this writer and this story to our attention. Yeah, absolutely. This is so glad. I've been, Karen Russell's been on my list for ages. And once again, our supporters have come through to put a book on my shelf that I wouldn't have been able to buy for five years, given my short list, even though she's on my short list. It's it's amazing. And, you know, just another echo of gratitude for for our listeners and their real breadth of knowledge of contemporary writers out there. But Glenn, now it's time for you to reveal your favorite passage of the year. Well, my favorite passage of the year also comes from a story that was commissioned by the same listener. So uh, this listener has some great taste in pro style. I think we can say that that is, is definitively the case. And this is from the Gertrude Atherton story, The Dead and the, the Countess. I really loved this story. This was a real kind of magical realism story from uh, the early part of the, the 20th century uh, set in Brittany. It's just a beautiful, beautiful, heartbreaking story and full of just lush imagery. And I'm going to read the, the second paragraph of this story. It's a long paragraph because, hey, it's from before 1948 and that's how, <laughs> that's how we did it then. But uh, I hope listeners will bear with me and it's, it's certainly uh, certainly worth it. And sometimes it was close to a picture of beauty. When the village celebrated its yearly pardon, a great procession came out of the church. Priests in glittering robes, young men in their gala costume of black and silver, holding flashing standards aloft, and many maidens in flapping white headdress and collar, black frocks and aprons flaunting with ribbons and lace. They marched, chanting down the road beside the wall of the cemetery, where lay the generations that in their day had held the banners and chanted the service of the pardon. For the dead were peasants and priests. The Quasacks had their burying place in a hollow of the hills behind the castle. Old men and women who had wept and died for the fishermen that had gone to the Grand Peche and returned no more. And now and again, a child slept there. Those who walked past the dead at the Pardon, or after the marriage ceremony, or took part in any one of the minor religious festivals with which the Catholic village enlivens its existence, all, young and old, looked grave and sad. For the women from childhood know that their lot is to wait and dread and weep, and the men that the ocean is treacherous and cruel, but that bread can be wrung from no other master. Therefore, the living have little sympathy for the dead who have laid down their crushing burden, and the dead under their stones slumber contentedly enough. There is no envy among them for the young who wander at evening and pledge their troth in the Bois de Mort, only pity for the groups of women who wash their linen in the creek that flows to the river." They look like pictures in the green, quiet book of nature, these women, in their glistening white headgear and deep collars. But the dead know better than to envy them, and the women and the lovers know better than to pity the dead. So some really beautiful imagery there. This is ostensibly just the description of a parade, you know, sort of springtime, early summer parade in this village in Brittany. Uh, but it ends up showing us a world where people 
welcome death as a kind of respite from the toil and suffering of life. But all of this in this highly emotive language that also tells us everything we need to know about what people do for a living in this village and what their daily lives are like, who these people are, all just in what is really the establishing shot of the story. It's a gorgeous passage. And as you were reading it, I remembered it vividly, reading it for the first time myself and just being pulled in to you know what ultimately becomes a, a really developed theme of the story, that death is a final rest. And to disturb that rest is to do something unjust, to do something evil. It, it really reminds us as readers of the sacredness of graves, of the you know, the care of the dead, uh, of why we hold them in our memories and the, the strange intrusion that modernity has had on our uh, ability to process grief or think about or confront death seriously. Uh, such a gorgeous story, such a beautifully written passage, uh, a lot of food for thought there, too. And I, I'm really glad you chose that one. Yeah, and I, I'm really glad now also that we've got this Gertrude Atherton book on our shelves because I, I want to read more. I very much want to read more. Well, Brandon, you already tipped your hand here. I think you said that your second passage uh, from this year, your second favorite passage from this year is Dan Simmons. Yeah, this is this is the image uh, from this year that I that has stuck with me much like, you know, the hot dog and mayonnaise image from Purity. <laughs> and so I couldn't resist reading it, though. This is, you know, perhaps less sublime in that, in that uh, awful romantic sense than than Thomas Ligotti's. But um, this this comes from a point in the River Sticks runs upstream where Simon, who was the narrator's older brother, tries to run away from home and bring the narrator along with him when they are both children. The narrator is younger than Simon. And this is because Simon is having a really hard time adjusting to living with his reanimated mother, as I think many of us would. And... Simon just wants to get out of the house. He has a plan to, to run away to the uncles and work on a ranch. And while the boys are in the woods, their first night out, the narrator experiences some strangeness in the middle of the night. And this is the passage I'm going to read. I woke up in the middle of the night. It was very still. Both of us had huddled down under the jackets and Simon was snoring. The leaves had stopped stirring, the insects were gone, and even the stream had stopped making noise. The openings of the tent made two brighter triangles in the field of darkness. I sat up with my heart pounding. There was nothing to see when I moved my head near the opening, but I knew exactly what was out there. I put my head under my jacket and moved away from the side of the tent. I waited for something to touch me through the blanket. At first, I thought mother was coming after us, of mother walking through the forest after us with sharp twigs brushing at her eyes. But it wasn't mother. The night was cold and heavy around our little tent. It was as black as the eye of that dead squirrel, and it wanted in. For the first time in my life, I understood that the darkness did not end with the morning light. My teeth were chattering. I curled up against Simon and stole a little of his heat. His breath came soft and slow against my cheek. After a while, I shook him awake and told him we were going home when the sun rose, that I wasn't going with him. He started to argue, 
But then he heard something in my voice, something he didn't understand. And he only shook his head tiredly and went back to sleep. In the morning, the blanket was wet with dew and our skins felt clammy. We folded things up, left the rocks lying in their rough pattern and walked home. We did not speak. If I recall correctly, we talked about this passage in our episode about this story, about how nothing actually happens in this passage, but so much of the character's mental state is both revealed to us. And then on a second reading, you know, we realize that perhaps something has been hidden from us as well. This is a fantastic piece of horror writing, and it really makes me want to revisit uh, Dan Simmons' coming-of-age horror novel, Summer of Night, but also read its sequel, which I still haven't read. Yeah, Winter Haunting. That is absolutely a beautiful book. I I love Summer of Night as well. In fact, that I've got on the shelf. Winter Haunting, I I don't have on the shelf, but uh, there's a lot of imagery from Winter Haunting that has really stuck with me. I think that's a book that I was reading probably right around the same time that I was actually reading the book of the short son by, by Gene Wolfe. Uh, so, which is to say that uh, it was over a winter break in college when, you know, I got to binge read speculative fiction and would, uh, try to devour as much as I, I could from my favorite writers. Well, uh, I'm, I'm not at all surprised, Brandon, that you've, uh, you've picked two passages by living, currently working writers here. It's not, not a surprise at all. Uh, not also not a surprise at all, of course, is that, uh, I have picked only passages from writers, uh, working at least a hundred years ago. And one of the things that I've really found three years of this show under our belt now that's a little bit surprising to me is actually how much I seem to really be drawn to uh, not so much the 19th century, which is what I would have said before we started this project, but actually the fin de siècle period, this period from about 1880 until the outbreak of the First World War. So these really late 19th century and early 20th century writers, uh, that's Gertrude Atherton. And it is also the other passage that I have picked here, and that's Robert W. Chambers. Uh, This year, we did In the Court of the Dragon on Elder Sign, and then we also did The Yellow Sign. That's when we did over on Patreon. So we've done the first four stories in The King in Yellow, And we both agreed, though perhaps you've changed your mind, Brandon, but at least at the time, we both agreed that this story in the Court of the Dragon has been the weakest entry so far and and probably weak by like a whole letter grade if we assigned letter grades to these stories. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I will say that the yellow sign also nearly made my top three, but I kind of made another arbitrary boundary around picking only stuff from the main show for my top three. I love Robert W. Chambers writing about the life of artists and their art. And my God, what a good story the yellow sign was. But you're right to point out that uh, In the Court of the Dragon has been the weakest entry so far into this collection of stories. Yeah, it, it, it has for sure. But even still, there's some amazing writing in this story. Even even if the story itself we didn't love so much, the wordsmithing is still magnificent. And so with Gertrude Atherton, I read one of the establishing paragraphs. But here with Robert W. Chambers, I'm going to read the end of the story, which uh, again, this is a passage we actually did highlight when we did this episode, but uh, we'll do it again. We'll do it live here. Death and the awful abode of lost souls, whither my weakness long ago had sent him, had changed for every other eye but mine. And now I heard his voice, rising, swelling, thundering through the flaring light. And as I fell, the radiance, increasing, increasing, poured over me in waves of flame. Then I sank into the depths, and I heard the king in yellow whispering to my soul, 
it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And this paragraph just really excites me. It's actually, I think, difficult for me to really step back and pull the paragraph apart in some ways so that I can explain what I love about it, because the language here, I think, is just so uh, intense. It's so emotional. But let me just start by talking about the sound of this passage. I mean, first of all, this just sounds like a sermon. And of course, this whole story is sort of maybe taking place in a church where sort of maybe the narrator is having a bad dream while he sleeps <laughs> through the sermon. And it just captures that. And, and Chambers gives us a, a number of rhetorical devices here. Uh, there's alliteration, right? We get awful abode and wither my weakness. We get active participles used in a, a sequence of three here to describe a, a building action. We get rising, swelling, thundering, we get the repetition of another active participle, right? We get the radiance increasing, increasing. And then we get the verb whisper in a phrase that actually ends with an exclamation point, right? So it's, we're being told that it's whispered, but then the punctuation suggests that it's actually something that should be shouted. And that's a dichotomy that I really love there. And all of these are really great tricks. They're also all very sermony, right? These sort of oratorical tricks. I said rhetorical, but in, in some ways, I think that actually these really, though they are rhetorical, lead into a type of, of a homiletic or, or sermonizing oratory that's just really awesome. But then I also love that Chambers juxtaposes this flaring light with the rising, swelling, and thundering voice. This thing that, that Chambers is describing here, this sort of visual here, this image, this is, or could be anyway, a description of the experience of being in a church for Vespers, which is an evening service, when the horizontal light of the setting sun would be pouring through the stained glass windows, and this would be accompanied by organ music. But here, Chambers is describing this not as a wonderful experience, right? He's describing it as a weird experience. It's a, a terrifying experience of hell rather than a kind of uplifting glimpse of heaven, which it's supposed to be, right? Which is what this experience is supposed to be. And it's just an absolutely brilliant bit of, of vivid writing that flips, uh, not maybe an everyday experience, but a, but a common experience on its head. When you said sound and then read this passage from In the Court of the Dragon, I was immediately brought back into the story and how much of the story relies on Chambers' description of sound, of the cacophony of the organ, of the voices that the main character hears, of the hammering in the court where he lives. It's just, it's a story that is so auditory, even though you're reading it. And uh, man, his, his, Chambers craft is something that always really surprises me, regardless of whether the story hangs together. I mean, the guy just could write a sentence. So I think he can be forgiven for having a, a clunker of a story every <laughs> once in a while. And, and, you know, clunker of a story, I think really perhaps mostly in comparison to the other stories in this collection that we've read so far. I, I think I would probably still say that In the Court of the Dragon is going to be in my top half of all the stories that we've read so far. But uh, I don't know. That's looking ahead to the whole series wrap up episode in a, a decade or, or two. So I won't, won't belabor that point. 
The other thing that we want to do in the writing craft portion of this episode is just to talk about the lessons that we learned about writing. This is where we put on our own writer's hats and think about what are some good uh, techniques or good lessons, some good examples that we can take with us into our own craft or, you know, try to take with us into our own craft anyway. And I don't have anything poignant really to say here or even anything really specific, but I just want to continue to harp on how awesome the transformation of Martin Lake is and say that I really admired the world building that Jeff Vandermeer does in that story. This is a story that I'm going to revisit uh, really just again and again, I think, to really try to take stock of what he does to make Ambergris come alive. I'm just so glad that we read this story. I hope we'll get more Vandermeer in the future so that we can see more of this craft, more of this technique. But I guess really what I'm trying to say is that in this story, Jeff Vandermeer has done everything I've ever tried to do in any of my Henslow stories and probably done it better. And I would like some lessons. Yeah, I definitely need lessons in in world building. This year has shown me uh, how often I need a sharp rebuke from you <laughs> to remind me that none, <laughs> none of my world building stuff makes sense, even if the plot is sound. Uh, and so that, yeah, that's been really helpful to look at the way some of these writers, particularly Vandermeer, um, but also I think Gogol too, incorporate a real sense of place into the character's mindset and into the character's journey that allied a lot of the need for whole paragraphs uh, to, and establishing shots of, of the world. And that is certainly something um, that I have taken with me from this year as well. But I mean, I, I think my, my takeaway from this year is a little different. This year was just a really crazy year for me. I, I also don't have anything specific to say, but, you know, and, and by this year, I mean, really the year that we recorded these episodes, which bridged both 2020 and 2021, uh, the years of living in the basement, so to speak. So <laughs> something that really I learned this year in covering a lot of the stories that we covered this year, and as I said, it's not going to be that groundbreaking, but, but what I learned is how enjoyable and sometimes how soothing just a light and entertaining story can be and how much work goes into creating a story like that. You know, stories that engaged me on a purely craft or plot level this year in particular stood out to me more, even though maybe I spent less time with them in preparation for the show, they stood out to me more in most cases than stories that I had to do a lot of homework on stories that I had to spend a lot of time with and, and research. And that's not to say that there's nothing to some of these lighter stories. It's just that one gift that a writer can give their audience is giving them a break. And so giving my mind a break on some of these lighter weeks and chatting about Seabury Quinn or Robert E. Howard and Fritz Leiber and so on was just a real pleasure for me this year and something I want to bring into my own writing Um you know, is thinking about how a light touch can really impact the story, how a less maybe agonized style can be a pleasure for readers. And we did a lot of these lighter stories this year. And man, if there was ever a year to do them, this was it. This is a great point, Brandon, because this, I think, is part of why I hemmed and hawed about putting horror on the links in my top three is because Lovecraft didn't really like these these stories, these DeGrandin stories, because of their lightness. He, he just thought Seabury Quinn was not telling serious stories for serious people about serious things, but was just telling lighthearted romps. And uh, 
was doing a better job of selling stories than Lovecraft himself was. And so I hemmed and hawed about that, I, although without really thinking about it in those terms. But I think that that was absolutely there in the back of my mind. Was I, I felt a little bit guilty for loving a light story as much as I did, but I really did. It was it was an entertaining romp, and I do need that and want that from time to time. And I, I, I guess I hadn't thought about it until now, but uh, you know, I do mostly write occult detective stories of my own. That's that's my main mode of of writing, and. And it's really great for me to read a sort of lighter, maybe dialogue-heavy romp like Horror on the Links or really any Agatha Christie novel, even if the type of writing I'm trying to do is more like what Jeff Vandermeer does in The Transformation of Martin Lake. Seeing the other ways of doing it is extremely important, as well as just super fun. It is super fun. And I think uh, I sometimes, you know, a lot of a lot of writing for me on the craft, part of the fun or engagement that I get out of it as a, as a craftsman is, uh, you know, uh, deploying poetic techniques or, you know, listening to the music of dialogue or things like that. And, and sometimes getting deep into the weeds like that makes me forget how enjoyable a simple plot done well is just as valuable as, I don't know, exploring some darker part of our society. And I think that these stories have actually aged well. Seabury Quinn, Robert E. Howard, maybe not so much, even though that reveals a, maybe a cultural milieu that Howard was a part of that we find distasteful. But Fritz Lieber, too, that it's just, it's simplicity done well that gives enough for your imagination. And it brings me back to the reading sensations that I had when I was a boy, where you read a story and your imagination does 90% of the work. And when you go back to it as an adult, it feels light and empty. But these stories didn't feel light and empty, even though they are these kind of boyhood adventure stories. And you know, as you know, Glenn, uh, though none of our listeners do, that's something I, I am trying to capture in, in some of the pulpier writing that I'm doing um, as, as part of the broader Clay Temple Media project. I think something that the the writers that you're you're lumping together here, and, and rightfully so, they're they're actual contemporaries. They're making a living out of the same or at least similar magazines. One of the things that they had going for them that you and I simply have not incorporated into our lives, although I suppose we could, we just have resisted it because there are other things we're doing, like podcasting. Um, but that they didn't have time to agonize. <laughs> Right. They they're just cranking out stories. You know, Robert E. Howard, especially because he's making a living at his writing. Seabury Quinn was making a living, uh, you know, pretty decent living doing some other things. But Howard is cranking out a story a week, at least a story a week. And so there's a lot of there's and so there's just no hemming and hawing. There's no agonizing over things. It's just sit down and write and write like the wind. And that is something that can be said for all three of these writers you've just invoked is that you can feel the wind in the writing there. Absolutely. And then when you put it down, I don't know, you still feel maybe some echoes of the wind. You're not quite in the wind chamber anymore, but maybe you're in an adjacent alley or something like that. <laughs> uh, and and yeah, these, these lighter stories really were just the break I needed this year. And um, yeah, I read, I do read a lot of contemporary airport novels. I don't know, two or three a year just to try to keep up with, with trends in publishing. Um, but you know, maybe I have a tendency to overthink it. And uh, the, these writers have taught me, write the story, rewrite the sentences, you know, and uh, it's a real pleasure for me. It was a real pleasure, as I've said many times, to to read some of this older 
fiction that was meant to be maybe discarded with the magazine when you were done with it and just how well a lot of it holds up because the plot mechanics work. Brandon, everything you're talking about here, your, your comments here on these these pulp stories, these adventure stories, really, you know, lumping authors together is anticipating our next segment. So let's just get into that. And this is where we're going to try to lump together <laughs> a couple of stories, <laughs> maybe maybe more than a couple, and just try to pull something out of the juxtaposition of stories, uh, really the random juxtaposition of stories that we get because our listeners decide what it is that we are going to read and talk about, uh, you know, from episode to episode. And uh, Brandon, you're going to go first here. We've each got one, but you're going to go first and you're going to talk about one of the big motifs that we had this year, which is painting and painters. Yeah, this is uh, kind of a big topic and it's something I think about a lot. And you've asked me to keep this short, so I'll do the best that I can here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we spent five episodes this year talking about artists, uh, really what amounts to a weird variation on the genre Kunstler Roman, which itself is a variation of the Buildings Roman. And, you know, the Buildings Roman, if we haven't fully defined it, is a genre of fiction. And I guess it could be nonfiction as well. That is about the formation, either moral or otherwise, of its protagonist. Bildung means formation, Roman you know, novel. So the formation novel, uh, the Kunstler Roman is just that the formation of the protagonist, but it's about artists. And the two novellas that we talked about this year with this theme on the main show were Nikolai Gogol's The Portrait and Jeff Vandermeer's The Transformation of Martin Lake. And for those who haven't listened to those episodes yet, I recommend them because, well, I'm not going to rehash our discussions here, uh, <laughs> but I do have a few thoughts about these stories as we bring 2021 to a close. What most interested me in thinking about how these stories, how we're lumping them together here, maybe artificially, perhaps not, though, is how both of these stories are in some way about the purpose of of art and how they approach the question of what art is really in service to. And I'm not going to launch into a major lecture on aesthetics here. I will say, though, that before too many life transitions caught up with me all at once, I was reading about a section a day of Hans Georg Gadamer's uh, classic philosophical work, Truth and Method, which, you know, may have informed, <laughs> especially my <laughs> approach to the transformation of Martin Lake. I think uh, the portrait maybe has a different idea about aesthetics in mind. Uh, but, you know, that's because Vandermeer's story has a lot to say about the role of the spectator, as Georg Gat as Gadamer uh, refers to it, in terms of art appreciation and taste formation and maybe even ethics and stuff like that. And maybe that's a really good place as any to start with the idea of the purpose of art, of what the purpose of art is for, for both Gogol and, and Vandermeer. In both The Transformation of Martin Lake and The Portrait, there's a, a critique of art as an expression of the so-called authentic self. In Vandermeer's story, the authentic self is in relation with or in conversation with major institutions. And those institutions may be, you know, the powers that be that rule over the, the civic world or an artistic community that you belong to that has its pulse on the public taste. But essentially, Lake's art takes off with the help of some weird intervention 
once he's able to use his own style to represent the real darkness that is both inherent to and underlies the social order. So in the transformation of Martin Lake, even though Martin Lake is a maker of art, he's an artist, his art, even when it's for himself, does not have really any value until it's embraced by a wider audience. In other words, the story carries this kind of message with it that in order to be great, you have to be recognized, even if that recognition comes with a serious personal cost. And this is kind of a a postmodern mindset that there's no such thing as private knowledge or private greatness, that everything is part and participates in a social context, and that knowledge or even taste are part of these orders of context that require participation with the one who wishes to be great, because great is a social definition. The portrait, on the other hand, demonstrates that this desire to be recognized as great is tantamount to receiving inspiration from the devil, right? One may be talented and skilled as an artist or a craftsman, but what is most important is that one retains their primary social relation as piety, as a purposeful tracking after coming closer to God, following the path of godliness, And one shouldn't then seek to appease the crowds or the opinion of the crowd that makes up public taste and public opinion. One's own gift as an artist is just that. It's a gift to be stewarded because it comes from God. So seeking recognition from the masses is a kind of turning away from the path that we should all walk. And really what these two stories demonstrate on a small level then is is both a changing sense of art theory, of who the artist is in society, of what art represents, uh, but also a changing sense of cultural belonging and cosmological belonging. Though I think both stories do warn against squandering true talent in search of fame or wealth. Yeah, there's some great comparisons that we can make between Lake and and Chartkov. Some comparisons that really only occurred to me, you know, once you you got into this presentation here, Brandon, and really thinking about their relationship with money, right? With like commercial success, because yeah, Chartkov is someone who's got this amazing natural talent, and he squanders the talent in search of of wealth, but Lake maybe has some skill, but is not currently, and when the story opens, doing a whole lot with it. That there's some emotional block, I guess, to his really accessing his own unique view and and the ability to translate that into his painting. And of course the whole you know business with the transformation of the title or at least one of the meanings of the the word transformation in the title is that he has this experience that lets him access that and of course it's a horrifically traumatic experience and it, what we see is that you know where chartkov throws away his his talent and his ability to create great art in a quest for money lake discovers his ability to make great art because he needs it in order to heal from this traumatic experience. And, and that's a real great contrast, because I think, as you're suggesting, Brandon, they do point to something similar uh, that both Gogol and Vandermeer are saying about what art is for and um, why it sucks to make artists have to make a living instead of just make their art. 
Yeah, I, I really loved both these stories and they really do both carry a similar message. I think at the end of the day, yeah, maybe Martin Lake didn't need that trauma in order to produce great art. But Vandermeer's almost saying that the the order of being, the cosmology that Lake belongs to, a, bureauc- a bureaucratic society where even going to the post office is a reminder that, that you know, it's built on, on a crypt or mausoleum <laughs> or something like that, that you're being constantly reminded by the forces that are outside of you that are rooted wholly in secular interests and their power structure is formed really by people who are just like you, but maybe luckier or have a little more wealth has really dampened Lake's ability to create something amazing until he fully encounters the the powers behind the civic authorities and things like that. And so both stories are about the sorts of power structures that we participate in. But Gogol's point is that pursuing piety really frees us to make good art and good in both an ethical and then also culturally uh, tasteful sense. And that Vandermeer says that in a sense that those powers are, are evil when there's no broader cosmology or cosmological power beyond them. And I don't think there. I don't think Lake is particularly commenting on that. I think that that is the type of cosmology that we belong to now. That's assumed in our civic interactions. One of the things that really appealed to me about Gogol, and of course, just a quick reminder, hey, these two stories both appeared in my top three this year. But one of the things I really loved about Gogol was that this story is a little bit about monks, and I love monks, and uh, the idea of of uh, people painting for veneration. And Gogol just did an amazing job of writing about that experience, both from the perspective of the painter, but then also just describing what that's going to look like in the religious building. Uh, I had not really thought to try to understand the transformation of Martin Lake through some kind of religious lens. But there actually is a lot of religious stuff in that story. Uh, one particular detail that stands out to to me in my memory of, of the story is that uh, a bust of a religious figure is the only thing that survives the uh, fire that burns down the house where the murder takes place, where, where Martin Lake committed this this transformative murder. And we didn't really talk that much about that when we did this story, because the transformation of Martin Lake is part of this novella collection, The City of Saints and Mad Men. And we read it in isolation, and we just didn't really know anything about the religion, though we do get some of that in some of those other stories. So I think it would be well worth, if we ever get to read the rest of that collection, it would be well worth trying to go back and think about the transformation of Martin Lake in in terms of religion or, you know, read it through a kind of religious lens. I think that would be uh, perhaps not, you know, the best way to read that story, but I think it would be really fun and really fruitful nonetheless. Yeah, it certainly seems that to us, at least reading the story in isolation, that there isn't... Um a transcendental transformation uh, of Martin Lake, that he doesn't become more pious. Like the father who painted the evil portrait and then sought piety as a result, as a, as a form of penance. Um, and so I think though, and, and, and so I think then that this sense of art having some transcendental properties is, is still a through line in both stories. 
Yeah, these stories were just awesome. I think there's a ton to say about them still individually and in juxtaposition with each other. And I hope we'll get to revisit this. And look, we're going to keep reading Robert W. Chambers for sure. So we're going to keep talking about artists no matter what, I think, because uh, artists are always the heroes of his of his <laughs> stories. But uh, uh, I want to take a little time here to talk about sword and sorcery because somehow... We made it into our third year of Elder Sign before we got around to actually doing any sword and sorcery, despite the fact that sword and sorcery is a huge part of weird fiction. It was a huge part of what Weird Tales published. And even still, we only actually got to this near the end of this year, but we did come in big with this, right? We've, we've hit hard here with a Fawford and Grey Mauser story by Fritz Leiber, and then also a Conan novella from Robert E. Howard. And yeah, it's not a huge sample size, but still, I think we can point out maybe a few interesting comparisons uh, between these two stories. And uh, one that I think kind of immediately jumps off the page is um, they're the exact same plot. Uh, there are people on a boat looking for treasure who find a lost city from dim prehistory and are all slaughtered by something weird with the new guy they captured from another boat being the only survivor, <laughs> right? They're the exact same story, though it did not occur to me uh, while, while reading Queen of the Black Coast or even doing those two episodes that uh, we had literally just read the same story, but it turns out we did. But a little less tug in cheek here. They do also both traffic uh, in some some interesting notions here, and I think one in particular being the notion of having a, a hero, or you know, for for Liber, a pair of heroes who are exploring. Right, they're encountering some place that is new to them, and at least also a little bit terrifying, simply because of that newness. In fact, uh, but it, but also something that really matters is that it is only new to them. It is also actually inexplicably old. And so there's this sense of, of looking back into deep time and finding something that is at best mysterious, but really probably quite terrifying in the, the past and that uh, life was better before we knew about this. Uh, but really, I think that the thing I'm taking away from the juxtaposition of these two stories, at least, is uh, you know something that's, that's new for me, though I've read some sword and sorcery before, quite a bit of sword and sorcery before, but 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 what doing these stories together this year really did for me is to show how strongly sword and sorcery as a, a genre is a successor to 19th century adventure fiction, uh, thinking here of people like uh, H. Ryder Haggard and Rudyard Kipling, that it's really a successor to this adventure fiction than it is to 19th century fantasy fiction uh, by writers like George MacDonald, who's you know, so important for Tolkien. And that whole strand is such an influence of Tolkien. And we have talked before about uh, seeing the, you know, there's sort of the the Tolkien type of fantasy, and then there's the sword and sorcery type of fantasy that are really what you get in the, the bookshelves of libraries and bookstores in the 1970s, the 80s and 90s. But it had never occurred to me before to really even trace the roots of those types of stories to totally different places. But that seems so clear to me now. It's a really interesting point. So much of the adventure fiction of the 19th century uh, relies on, you know, class systems, porous borders for traveling. Like, I don't know if there were passports back then. You could just kind of go anywhere. I mean, I'm thinking of Byron here, like carving his name into <laughs> some Greek ruins and things like that. Um, and colonialism as well. And what, you know, Liber and Howard have done is kind of create a world 
that shows us that these cultures are at war with one another. So na- nationalism is a big part of the background, but that there are those people who kind of move between these cultures in search of their own fame and glory, just like Alan Quartermain, who could kind of go to these places that became available to him uh, through the, you know, expansionist policies or need for resources of the British Empire. And then these places are full of mystery. I mean, it's where we get phrases like the dark continent and things like that, um, which give us the sense that there's so much left to discover in the world. And so Howard and and Liber, you know, in, in the early third of the 20th century, early half of the 20th century are thinking, well, maybe too much of our world has now been discovered. We know too much about it. Let's create a world where our new characters have much to discover. And that to me, I'm really glad you brought that up because I also hadn't thought about it and thinking about it now that makes a, a lot of sense. And, and this also goes back to when we really first started doing uh, occult detective stories, these Edwardian or Fin de Secla occult detective stories. And we realized that um, that's actually the origin of urban fantasy, that urban fantasy is not uh, Tolkien style fantasy, except in a contemporary real world setting, that it, it's actually just our generation's version of occult detective fiction, right? That those are the origins here. So yeah, this was another sort of genre origin surprise for me that I'm I'm so glad that we got to put these stories together in such close proximity that this, you know, this, this occurred to me. I'm sure it has actually occurred to people before, uh, but it was a real uh, eye opener for me. And, and in fact, this is actually, I guess, uh, another kind of writing lesson that I will take with me is uh, to help me think about what it actually is to write uh, a sword and sorcery story story is not to be thinking about Tolkien, but to be drawing back to Kipling and Haggard and, uh, and, and other writers, of course, as well, to look to those types of story beats uh, for inspiration. The sense of a lost history or a forgotten history is also something that really appeals to me. And I, and I kind of automatically associate with those uh, advent, early adventure stories and kind of boy adventure tales that there is something that was overlooked by the experts that the that the kind of wealthy amateur can now uncover. And it's just a, a really, I don't know, it's an impulse that I feel strongly in my fiction that that was a, a big part of my imagination as a boy is, can I go to Scotland and be the one who discovers the Loch Ness Monster? Can I be the one who discovers that overlooked bit of a forgotten history? Um, and it's something I really love about the impulse of these writers as well to give us that sense of a forgotten history that maybe only one person will have the chance to discover given the way that knowledge proliferates, uh, even in the 1930s. Right. And, and we see a lot of this in Lovecraft. I mean, this is where we are in our, our episodes on At the Mountains of Madness right now as well. And of course, the locus for this now in our culture is space because we've done all the discovering here on Earth, right? Uh, and so now we put these types of stories in space. But I would love, you You have teased this actually on the, the episodes on At the Mountains of Madness. Uh, you have teased the idea of us doing some H. Ryder Haggard, uh, which I would love to do because I've never read him. I've never read King Solomon's Mines. I'm pretty sure I've seen a film adaptation when I was a kid, but I've never read it. And it seems like something to do with my, my writer's hat on and to have you there to, to, you know, work through it with me and bounce ideas off of, but I don't know. I don't know how we actually make yeah. that happen. <laughs> and I, yeah. I'm also not sure how much those stories function without the the racism, but that's something I really want to figure out is, you know, how do you take the, the ideas and the imagination of this writer and not rely on 
racism in order to make the plot function? It's a great question. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think, I think we have some adventure writers who have been able to do that. Um, though, you know, even Indiana Jones doesn't fully escape this sort of, uh, tendency of, or the, the heritage of this type of adventure fiction. No. And of course, Indiana Jones is someone we think about a lot on this, uh, on this show for sure. And and in fact, I think that anytime we bring up Indiana Jones, it is usually usually a clue that uh, uh, we've wandered off topic a little bit, that we've gotten sort of near <laughs> the end, if not the actual end of the episode. And so that is 2021 for us. But before we go, we do want to look ahead to 2022 because we do have some new things uh, that are going to be going on next year. But the biggest is going to be our next bonus series goal on Patreon, since we are now doing and we'll be quickly finishing up at the Mountains of Madness. And so... Uh, uh, here's the part where I get to have fun doing this live. I'm actually going to finally tell Brandon what is going to be on the ballot. Uh, this is something I've been putting together in consultation with some of our Patreon supporters. And uh, these are uh, things I've been working on or something I've been working on for uh, you know several weeks now, kind of quietly. I almost felt like I was hiding it from Brandon, although I don't think Brandon had any inkling that I was even working on this, but it felt like I needed to be sneaky. Uh, so the idea here is to make sure that on the ballot, we are representing the chronological breadth of modern literature. And so here it is, Brandon. Here's what is going to be on the ballot, and it's in chronological order. So first up is The Castle of Otranto by Horace Walpole. Um, uh, you almost universally regard it as being the you know first Gothic novel. Uh, and then we have The Willows by Algernon Blackwood, a great wilderness horror novella. Then we've got The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. We've also got I Am Legend by Richard Matheson, and then filling in the last slot here of, of, of contemporary fiction, right? Someone who's still working in fiction is The Tarn by China Mieville. Those are some great choices. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's really exciting. All of those would be fun to do. Castle of Otranto would be great. I, I am uh, familiar with uh, Walpole's novel, uh, because of its, you know, impact on the genre of, of gothic horror, gothic literature. Boy, that would be exciting. And uh, yeah, and, and getting to some Matheson would be a real joy. I, I love I Am Legend. I've read, you know, a bunch of his stories in uh, in bookstores over the years. Though never purchased <laughs> one. So it'd be nice to have some some Matheson on the shelf. Getting to more Mieville would be amazing. All in all, a splendid list, Glenn. Uh, I'm not mad you hid this from me. It was a wonderful surprise. I think I'd be glad to read any of these stories. Yeah, we totally forgot to set up the actual spit take for you. But, uh, yeah, this is a great list. And I'm, I'm so grateful for uh, the listeners who helped me uh, put this together. And of course, we will have this vote. We're going to have it next month uh, in January 2022. We will not announce the results on the air, though, probably until at least late spring, just because of our, our recording schedule, meaning that we will we will carry on recording episodes, many of them actually, uh, for 2022 before we actually get ourselves the results of this vote. But I'm very excited for this and we'll be very excited to see how close it is. Uh, this already, you can hear again, the secret pollster in me coming out and already envisioning <laughs> what the results are going to going to look like and salivating over tallying up the results on this ballot. And so we have come full circle. I began as secret pollster. We're ending with me as secret pollster. So that is going to do it for this episode. And it's going to do it for 2021 on Elder Sign. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. As we always do, the network is going to take a break for the holidays. So Elder Sign will be back on January 11th with Sand Kings by George R.R. R. Martin. Really hope you enjoyed our 
year in review episode. And this holiday break is a really awesome time to join us on Patreon. If you have not already, uh, you'll be just in time for our two Christmas episodes. One of them is going to be a ghost story by Jen Ashworth. And of course, there are, I don't know, must be six or seven hours of us talking about at the Mountains of Madness that uh, we hope can keep you company if you've got a long journey for the holiday. So please do check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash Clay Temple Media. And of course, you'll be able to vote for what we're going to do next in January as well. And so until next year, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>